passage this morning is 2 Samuel chapter 7. When we come to this passage, it is one of the most important passages of Scripture. How we got to this point is last week as we were joining, as we were examining David's grief over the loss of Saul and his son Solomon, the reigning king of Israel. Um, after that, what happened is that David gets anointed king. He spends the next seven years where his kingdom is getting consolidated, is expanding, and is being made secure. We then come to this passage of Scripture that is one of the most important passages of Scripture. We have Dave, as he was giving our announcement, talked about um, the advancement of God's kingdom, how we want to help bring the peace, the love, the joy, the restoration of God's kingdom to this community. The idea of God's kingdom is central to the Christian faith. In fact, we celebrate it throughout the year. At Christmas time, we celebrate that the king is coming, that the king has been born. At Easter, we celebrate that the king is coming into Jerusalem. All these different ideas about kingship, all of them are rooted in the passage that we find here today and the promise that God gives to David. So as we dive into this, this passage is a bit of a, um, we are just barely scratching the surface of the depths of this passage. I think I really could preach in this passage for the next three months with, with a depth and richness to it, but I'm not going to do that. Um, instead, what we're going to do is we're going to go a big picture overview of what's going on in this passage here today. And my hope is, is that you will walk away with a deeper understanding, one, of why this is so critical, and an understanding of who God is in your own life. also hope that you walk away with just a profound gratitude for God's grace and that you submit to Christ and his kingship and his lordship in your life. This is this morning a little bit of um, theology of kingship. So I urge you to stay with me and track with me as we're going through this. But two main things I'm going to be emphasizing this morning that we're going to examine. One is the pattern of God's grace. And secondly, we're going to look at the permanence of God's grace. Follow along with me as I read this passage from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. But the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you, Wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, this is why God's blessing David, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from that time that I appointed judges over my people Israel." And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, 
The Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Father, we ask that in the depths of the riches of this passage that you would open up your word to us that we would see the pattern of your grace, the permanence of your grace, and submit ourselves to your King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let's just dive right into the pattern of grace that is shown in this passage of Scripture. There is something that is bothering David, and this is what it was. It said, now when the king lived in his house... And the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. David is acknowledging that there is, this, that there is something wrong when the servants of God are blessed, but the house of God and the work of God is neglected. You know, up to this point, David has spent years securing his position. Yes, with God's blessing. He has spent years accumulating wealth, securing the stability and the posterity of his children. And he has, looking at all that he has done over the past several years, all that he has done throughout his life, and he has this profound conviction. I have done nothing for the Lord. I have done nothing out of love for the Lord. Quite frankly, this is a conviction that should hit each one of us. <laughs> to look at our own lives and to say, I have lived my life to promote my own security and stability. I have lived my life out of love for myself, out of the interests of my family, to secure a future for my children. And the conviction should hit each one of us, what have I done out of love for the Lord? What have I done to serve him? This is a conviction that David shares here, is a conviction that later prophets, after David's kingdom is established and the The people of Israel get established there. They disobey the Lord. They go into exile. They eventually come back from exile. And as soon as they return from exile, and they're reestablished as the people of God in Israel, the response of the people is saying, this is great. Now I can live to secure myself and to secure my family and to secure my own wealth. And the prophet Haggai confronts them with this question. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? You live in luxury while this house lies in ruin, referring to the temple of the Lord. Where the prophet is confronting them. You have lived your life to build your own house, to build your own wealth, to enhance your own comfort. But the house of the Lord and the work of the Lord has been neglected. So David has this conviction. And as he shares this conviction with the prophet Nathan, Nathan affirms to him that it's something good and says, Go, do all that is in your heart. For the Lord is with you. Except that God insists on clarifying something very important before David can fulfill this. 
God insists on clarifying the pattern of grace. Here's what happens. The word of the Lord comes to Nathan. And the word says, the Lord says to David, go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? And then the Lord rehearses how God took David from the, being a shepherd, following sheep around the fields, how God took him and made him a prince over the people, how God secured his kingdom, how God put him in the throne, how God blessed him and gave him grace in so many different ways. And he rehearses what he does. And so God says to him, would you build me a house to dwell in? And then he says to David, he tells David all the things that he's going to do for him. How he's going to secure his throne, secure his kingdom, give him a great name. And the reason why he is going to do that is so that God's people would dwell securely. And then he says to David, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. The word house can be used in three different ways. It can mean a house, like a physical structure, a place to dwell in. It can mean a house like a household, or it can mean a dynasty, like we would say the house of Windsor, meaning a dynasty. And so God flips the, 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 the usage of the term on David. God says to David, I'm going to build you a house. I'm sorry, David says to the Lord, I'm going to build you a house, a structure for you to dwell in. And God says, no, it is not you who will build for me. But it is I who will build for you a house, a dynasty. And God wants to make sure there is no confusion on the pattern of grace. It is not, the pattern of grace is not that we do for God and then God blesses us. But rather the pattern of grace is this, is that God blesses us. And then he blesses us again because of his grace. So what God emphasizes He's saying, no, God is the one who initiates. It is God who blesses. God who blesses, and then he blesses more. It is God who is the initiator. He is no one's debtor. It is God who says to David, David, I chose you. I blessed you. I am the one who has made you prosper. Says the same thing to us. All that you are is wholly a work of my grace. All that you have, all that you can do, All that you will be is only and wholly a work of God's grace being poured out on you. And it has nothing to do with you, but only and wholly because of the grace of God. The grace, for those of you that are followers of Jesus, the grace that you have received in your life is completely undeserved and nothing because of you. The additional grace you have received, further grace you received in your life, is just as undeserved as it was the first time. It is wholly a work of God's grace. Now, I'm convinced that David's desires here spring from godly convictions, as I already mentioned. But God wants to ensure that there is no confusion. Actually, he doesn't say no to David. He says not yet. It's going to happen through your descendant. But God wants to ensure that there is no confusion. It is not you who blesses God. But it is God who blesses you. This is the total opposite of the way we think God works, is it not? The way we think God works is a little bit more like this. Is, well, if I'm obedient, if I serve God, if I live for God, then God will bless me. 
Now, those of us who have been around the church for some time might say, wait, 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 we know that's not the case, that grace is a gift of God, it's not by works so that nobody can boast, it's not the things that we do, it's wholly the work of God. God, we say that, but then what happens for most of us is something bad happens in our life. And we say, why is this happening to me? Something happens that, that you had, that may be something you've been struggling with. Maybe it's having children. Maybe it's your personal finances. And then you see somebody who is maybe even outright sinning, and they not only are blessed with a beautiful family, they're blessed with prosperity, they're blessed with all these different things, and you say, why did this happen? Why did they get those blessings? I'm the one that's following God. I'm the one that's serving him. I'm the one that's trying to live for him. Why does God give it to those people and not to me? Right? Is that even people who have been Christians for a long time really think that God's grace to us comes from our obedience. And do you know what, friends? That is the pattern of religion. It is the pattern of religion in every religion of the world except Christianity. It is the pattern of religion that I act for God and then God will bless me. God's blessing on me, God's grace towards me is dependent upon my, my obedience. It's the pattern of every religion except Christianity, and it has been true for thousands and thousands of years. It is what man does, what mankind does when they generate a God in their own image. When people conceive of a God... And they make self-made, man-made religion. The way it works is, God, I'm going to do something for you, and in return, you owe me. Here's how it happened thousands of years ago. It's really not any different today. Mesopotamia, there was a guy, um, a king named Ernamu. And he decided that for his god named Enlil, that because Enlil, his god, got him, helped him become king, he decided to build a great temple a great house for Enlil to dwell in. And not only did he do it for Enlil, but he did it for Enlil's wife, Mrs. Enlil, also known as Ninlil. She's the beauty on the right there. And he decides that he's going to build her this great house. And in return, Enlil promises, or Namu records, he promises this, quote, that there would be decreed a great fate for Ernamu into distant days because of the houses that he has built for him. It's not just there, but... A couple hundred later, years later, another one, Yadin Lin, he decided that at this time, after he became king, he attributes this to the god, in the, the pagan god Shamash, that all the victories he has. So in response to where he is, in response to becoming king, he decides that he is going to build the, most big, the biggest, most elaborate temple. And in return, this king declares that Shamash, the god, pagan god, says to him, that Shamash would, quote, defeat his enemies Give him a long and happy rule, everlasting years of abundance and happiness. Do you hear the pattern of religion? I act, God blesses me. It's not just there, other places such as in Egypt. King Tutmos III, with his statue on the left, uh, in response to his sun god, Ray, after he uh, gets many victories, King Tutmos sings words, sings a hymn to the sun god, Amon Ray, and in, those, in that song, he declares what Amun Re said to him, rehearses the victories. And Amun Re acknowledges, as Tutmos declares, Amun Re acknowledges that it was Tutmos who built an elaborate castle for him and gave him more monuments than any other king. And as a result, he will establish thee upon the throne for millions of years that thou might leadest the, le might leadest the living from eternity. Do you hear the pattern of religion? 
Another place, more biblical area. In Aser, King Esarhaddon, 6th, 7th century B.C., certainly within biblical times. He rebuilds the temple of Aser, and in return, he says he does so. He declares to his God that he is going to build him a temple in exchange for length, quote, length of days, the stability of my reign, for the welfare of my posterity, for the safety of my priestly throne, for the overthrow of my enemies, for the success of the harvest of Assyria, and for the welfare of Assyria. Any wonder why he served his God? Any wonder why he obeyed? Because he was following the pattern of man-made religion, which is I act and God will respond. You know, it really is no different today when you look around. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, everybody... I would say, unfortunately, many Christians really think that a relationship with God is dependent upon their obedience. People who have been Christians for a long time still think that a relationship with God is dependent upon their obedience. They say, no, no, I'm I'm saved by grace. But man, God's grace goes away from me if I'm not obedient. They still think that God's grace in their life is dependent upon their obedience. And that is the pattern of religion. It is not the pattern of grace. It is not that we do something for God and then God does something for us. No, the pattern of grace is is that it is God who blesses, and then it is God who blesses more. And then we respond somewhere along the way. And then it is God who blesses more. It is undeserved. It is not from us. God is no one's debtor. He owes nobody anything. Anything. Grace comes to those who are undeserving. And then it comes again to those who are still undeserving. If you're a Christian, this pattern is true in your life. That you are in much as need of God's grace today as when you first became a Christian some years ago. If not more so. For those of you that are exploring the Christian faith and trying to make sense, and what does it mean, you're, and you've got this sense in your life, you're saying, you know what, I need to get my act together, I need, to, I need to get right with God. Here's the pattern of grace. There is nothing that you will do that can or will compel God to show you grace. Nothing. Rather, what happens is that God shows grace to you and pours grace upon you, not because of you, but because of him. And he pours it out to you again. And the only thing that you can do is receive it. And this is the way that God, the God of the Bible, has been acting for thousands of years. And in his fullest expression, this is what he's done in Jesus Christ, as we'll see in a few moments, of his grace being poured out to you through him. And all you have to do is receive it. It is nothing from you. It has been raining a lot this spring, has it not? And what does the earth do to get the rain? What does it do? It does nothing. It does nothing. The rain comes upon it, and it simply receives it. And the grace of God comes upon you because of nothing that you do. It is the pattern of God's grace. Now, you may think through that, and you say, you know what, but, but I, but I really want to really do something for God. Well, that can be good. For some of you, the reason why you really want to do something for God is because you don't like being indebted to anybody. And you think, you know what, if God's going to do something for me, well, I'm going to show him that he made a good choice, that that he was glad that he picked me on his team. 
I'm, I'm going to show them that, that, that I'm going to be obedient enough, and so that way I'll, I'll get a bigger crown, I'll, I'll get a bigger house, that God will bless me more because of my obedience. And do you see what God does to David? David says, I want to do something for you. And God's like, no, 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 no. It is I who do for you. Do not be confused. Do not be confused with the pattern of grace in your life. Now, maybe like David, you actually have a sincere desire out of gratitude for what God has done that you say, wow, it really is nothing because of me. It really wholly is because, only is because of God's grace poured out on me. And maybe in response to that, you're saying, I have a heart to love God. I have a heart where I want to serve God. Like David did. That's, that's great. But you have to first accept that it is God who does for you, not you who does for God. And then you need to accept it again and again and again that it is God who does for you and not you who do for God. Because God's grace comes to you not because of you, but because of him. And because of the outpouring of his grace in your life. And that is the pattern of grace, and it is not the pattern of religion. The second thing that I want you to understand from this passage is the permanence of God's grace. And we're going to journey through, in a moment, we're going to journey through Scripture, and I want you to understand how these passages, which are very familiar to some of you, they're new to, new to many of you, they're very familiar to some of you, how all the passages that we're going to look at root themselves in the promise of God that he gives to David, and that that promise is still being worked out in your life, and it's being worked out in my life. A couple aspects about the permanence of God's grace Three things. One is that death does not destroy God's grace. He gives the promise to him, to David, and he says to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you. You who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Is that even though David may die, David might lie down, God will raise up according to his promise. And actually, it's the same promise he gave to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, that is being expanded, focused, and fulfilled, and broadened in David. But death does not destroy God's grace. Not only that, sin cannot spoil God's grace. When David's descendants sin, he says, I will be a father to him, speaking particularly of Solomon and the future kings. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, God's a realist. It's going to happen. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as it did from Saul, whom I put away from before you. How good news is it that your disobedience, your sin, does not make the steadfast love of God go away? Sin cannot spoil God's grace. If God's promise to us, if his grace to us depended upon our obedience, we were hosed before it began. If God's faithfulness depended upon people, human beings, acting rightly from generation to generation to generation, what hope would there be? There would be none. But rather, God says that sin will not spoil my grace. He is declaring that there is a king, 
And there is a king coming, and the king that rules and reigns is not sin. Sin is not victorious. Sin does not have the final say. It does not have the final authority. Sin will not dissolve God's grace. It will not destroy God's grace. It will not thwart his love, and it cannot spoil it. Sin is not the victor. Sin does not reign. It does not conquer. No, it is God who does. Thirdly, Time will not terminate God's grace. Three times he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever in your house, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Time will not terminate it, but rather time will fulfill God's promise. It will not exhaust it, but rather will will fulfill it. Now, what I want you to pay attention to, I'm going to go through a bunch of passages of Scripture right now. And I want you to hear how this promise to David is expanded and focused again and again and is the hope that you hold on to this day. This prophecy is given, promised to David given roughly around 1000 BC, 300 years later, to the prophet Isaiah. God says to Isaiah, the day is coming. And for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of of his peace, of the increase of it, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. There is an eternal king coming who his rule will increase without end. Through through this eternal king who is coming on the throne of David, fulfilling the promise that God gave to David, his kingdom will expand, his kingdom will grow, and it will be an eternal king. A generation later, God declares through Jeremiah, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Why for David? Because of the promise that God gave to David and the permanence of God's grace to him. I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That this eternal king will bring a righteousness to the people of God. That the people of God will be made right with God through this eternal king. And that there will be a salvation. They will be saved through this eternal king who is coming. 150 years after this, prophet Zechariah declares, Rejoice, O greatly, O daughter of Zion, Zion being the mount in Jerusalem. That's the reference for that. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, the place where David set up his throne and where Solomon built the temple of the Lord, the house of the Lord. Behold, your king is coming to you. The fulfillment of God's permanence of his grace is going to come. But it's not going to come like you're expected. Rather, it is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. If you've ever been to a Palm Sunday service, that should sound familiar. 
that the eternal king who is coming, the eternal king who is bringing rightness and righteousness, who is bringing salvation, is not coming on a war horse. He is coming on a vehicle of peace, the foal of a donkey. And then this king comes. Stay with me. And the promise expands, and other nations realize that the king that comes through the line of David is not just for the Jews, but for the people of the earth. For the wise men studying the scriptures came, and they go to Herod, and they say, Herod, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. And to Mary, the angel comes to Mary and says to Mary, as Mary is about to become pregnant, conceived by the Holy Spirit, that the child within her will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, that he will be called the Son of God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will be, have no end. That there will be the Son of the Most High, the eternal King who is fully God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, one who is a man who is fully man. That these two being joined together in one eternal, righteous King who brings salvation and peace to his people. And then on Palm Sunday, when people come marching in, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey... The clouds, the crowds gather together, they throw, they cut branches from the trees, they spread them on the road. And the crowds go before Jesus as he enters, and the people were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! Why are they saying Hosanna to the Son of David? Because they are acknowledging that Jesus is the eternal King. The one who is the fulfillment of the eternal promise to David, broadened by the the prophets, that the eternal son of David, the one who brings righteousness, who brings salvation, who brings peace, the one whose reign and rule will extend to the ends of the earth, this one, the son of David, is now coming into Jerusalem. And then Jesus is nailed to a cross, dies. But God raises him from the dead victoriously conquering sin, breaking the power of sin over us, throwing off the chains of death, breaking the power of the devil. And ultimately, he ascends into heaven. And as Paul declares that God has now highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the boss. He is the king. He is the one who is enthroned on high. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then the day is coming when his kingdom will come in its fullness. Yes, we live in between. The king has come, but his kingdom's not yet here completely. But the day is coming when the kingdom of God will come in its fullness. And as John declares in Revelation, the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven and declared, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. And it is from this verse in Revelation that the hallelujah chorus 
that handles Messiah, sings this verse, and he shall reign forever and ever, right? Because the eternal king has come, the promise to David has been fulfilled. And finally, John declares, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, now to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Why? Because Jesus is the eternal son of David, the eternal king of kings, Lord of lords, who bestows grace upon grace upon grace on us, who woos us to himself and subdues us to himself. Jesus is the eternal son of God, the eternal son of David, who rules and defends his people, who restrains evil, and yes, will conquer all of his, and thereby all of our enemies. Given the pattern of God's grace and the permanence of God's grace, there's only one question that matters as it comes to the promise of this eternal king. And the only question that matters is this. Is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your king? For there is no other king who will reign and rule for eternity and is doing so right now. Is Jesus the one who calls the shots in your life? Is Jesus the one that you go before and you praise him because you see that it is through him and through his grace alone that God has given you grace and then he has given you more grace in your life through Jesus Christ? Is he your king? Is he the one that you submit to and submit to his rule in this world? And you submit to his rule in your life and his rule in your own heart because he is the king, the king eternal, the one through whom God's promise has been, is being, and will be fulfilled. I hope that through this, I hope as we have done this 10,000 foot flyby, just barely scratching the surface into this promise of God, I hope today that through this that you will walk away from here embracing the grace that God has shown to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that you will walk away from here embracing again and again the grace the Lord has shown you to Jesus Christ. And that puts you in a really awkward position because you're going to say, well, don't I have to do something? And God says, not until you understand that it's all about me. I hope you embrace God's grace for you through Jesus Christ. And then you submit to him, to the Lord Jesus Christ, as the one and only true eternal king. And then once you do so, you, like David, fall down and worship him because there is nothing else that you can do. Let's pray to that end. Father, we, <laughs> I thank you for the depths and wonder of your scripture. Lord, I thank you for this passage that your saints have contemplated on and reflected on for thousands and thousands of years and that your love never ends. Lord, I praise you that your, your grace to us, your steadfast love isn't spoiled by our sins for Lord, we would be, what hope would we have? But Lord, your grace comes to us simply because of your grace. 
Like your salvation for us, Lord, is all about you and not about me. Lord, your grace in my life is all about you and about nothing that I do. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you show more grace. And Lord, we're wholly dependent upon you. And Lord, thank you that, that I don't need to be king of my life. Rather, moreover, thank you that, that it's an abomination if I am. But Lord, would your grace move my heart that I would bend the knee. Lord, that we would bend the knee in all areas of our life and submit to you, the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the King of grace and the King of glory. Lord, work your spirit in us and draw us to you, we pray. Amen.